I'm sure some of you are parents, but even if not, you're surely aware of the universal hope and prayer of every parent that their children won't make decisions that result in painful and sometimes lifelong consequences. Discovering that a teenager or adult child has made a choice of that kind is excruciatingly painful, something every parent dreads. And the thing is, not too far into the parenting process, we realize that we as parents can't control every move our kids make. They have a will of their own, and their will doesn't always line up with what's best for them. In Genesis 3, we find God, the ultimate father, having the conversation with his children, Adam and Eve, that no parent wants to have. Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the consequences were heartbreaking. Now, we've learned in our study of beginnings that Genesis teaches us much about God. In chapter 1, he's called Elohim, the all-powerful creator. In chapters 2 and 3, he's introduced as Yahweh, a very personal Lord God. And this week, in our study of the last half of Genesis 3, we see God in his role as the righteous judge of the earth. But amazingly and thankfully, these same verses also portray him as a God of tremendous grace and mercy, even when God's wrath and judgment were all that was warranted. God offered much grace to Adam and Eve. First, though, the Lord had to confront Adam and Eve with their sin. So turn with me to Genesis 3, where in verse 8, we read, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve heard God walking? God is spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. So what does this mean that they heard him walking? It's possible, rather than any actual noise, this sound of the Lord walking actually refers to just the dread in Adam and Eve's hearts, you know, that fear of being confronted with their disobedience. However, other Old Testament passages indicate that the Lord sometimes did reveal himself in a visible form. In a number of these passages, the one who appears is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Bible students call an Old Testament appearance of God to man in a visible form a theophany or a Christophany. The term Christophany specifically implies an appearance of Jesus on the earth in physical form prior to his incarnation, his birth to Mary. Now, many, if not most, evangelical scholars believe that the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The assumption that it's actually Jesus and not another person of the Trinity is derived from the teaching of John 1.18, that no one has seen God the Father. And of course, Jesus is the person of the Trinity known in human history to have taken on human form. Now, Adam and Eve heard the Lord God walking. Leading up to this time, we may suppose that Adam and Eve regularly walked with God in the garden. Walking with God 
is a scriptural phrase that implies intimate fellowship. In Genesis, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham are all said to have walked with God. Sadly, for Adam and Eve, the sweet anticipation of hearing God approaching for fellowship had become the awful sound of unavoidable judgment. In verse 9, the Lord called out to Adam, Where are you? The you of these verses is in the singular form. In other words, God called out to Adam alone. The implication is that Adam bore the greater responsibility. However, the verse tells us that both Adam and Eve heard him and hid. They had sinned and broken fellowship with God. They were unworthy of God's attention. And yet, don't miss this, God graciously sought them out. You see, it's God who pursues sinners and not the other way around. Now, clearly, omniscient God didn't ask Adam where he was out of ignorance. He was giving Adam an opportunity to expose himself and his sin. Confession is always the first step toward repentance. Rather than confess, Adam responded that he'd hidden, hidden out of fear because of his nakedness. His guilty conscience made him fear the judgment that he knew he deserved. Apparently, Adam wasn't as concerned with his true guilt as with his feelings of guilt. It was his nakedness that troubled him most. And I can't help but wonder, do we, like Adam, hate feeling guilty more than we hate the sin in our lives? Next, let's look at verse 11. And the Lord God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Again, God first confronted Adam. The you here is singular again. Although God knew the answers, his questions allowed this opportunity for confession. Again, instead of casting themselves on their faces in humility and grief, Adam and Eve sought to defend themselves. Adam blamed Eve, whom God gave him, suggesting that the fault lay in part on God himself, and Eve blamed the deception of the serpent. Isn't it true? Throughout time, sinners, and that's every one of us, have continued to play the blame game, shifting the blame to someone else. But you know, to suggest that any part of the blame for our guilt lies beyond ourselves is really failing to make true confession. Now, before we move on to consider the outcome of this confrontation over their sin, let's pause and take note of an important truth the passage suggests about God, I've already mentioned it, that God graciously sought out the sinners and confronted them. That's our first principle today. It's God who pursues sinners and not the other way around. It's God who pursues sinners. In 1917, the Oxford Book of English Mystical Verse published the poem of Francis Thompson, by the name The Hound of Heaven. G.K. Chesterton called the poem the greatest ever written. 
It describes the author's flight from God into the arms of many other kinds of lovers and God's relentless pursuit of him all the while. Later, C.S. Lewis borrowed the idea to describe his own conversion. The hound of heaven had pursued him relentlessly. According to Luke 15, Jesus told a group of people who gathered, people who were complaining about the company he kept, he told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God pursues us because he is merciful and gracious. These are unchangeable attributes of God's character, attributes that stem from his inherent goodness. Now, mercy and grace differ in meaning. Mercy is God determining to withhold the wrath that we deserve. Grace is God's determination to give us what we don't deserve. Both are God's love to the utterly undeserving. We can't earn them. Some people claim that grace and mercy are actually just New Testament concepts, but the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. His grace can be seen from the earliest chapters of the Bible. Here we see that he graciously sought out Adam and Eve, giving them an opportunity to repent when all they deserved was his wrath. You know, once we've walked with God for a period of time, it's easy to look back and see that our salvation and every aspect of our spiritual growth have ultimately and always been at God's initiative. Sin has damaged us too severely to ever choose to look for him on our own. Romans 3.11 says, There is no one who seeks God. He is our pursuer. In our hopelessly lost condition, he does all the work to find us, restore us, and transform us. Our only responsibility is to yield. My friend, which lost sheep are you still waiting for God to reach? Will you intercede in prayer with the hound of heaven on their behalf? And then will you rest in faith that he will do the necessary work to find this one who is far more precious to him than to you. They may be hiding from God and denying responsibility for their life, but he knows where they are and just how to reach them. God graciously pursued Adam and Eve, and in verses 14 to 25, he pronounced judgment But even in the judgment, he offered hope. 
Now let's look at God's judgments, beginning with the serpent's curse. Although Satan was the power behind this particular serpent, and it was he who tempted Eve, nevertheless, the serpent species was still judged. The early church father, John Chrysostom, explained the serpent was Satan's tool. And just as a loving father, when punishing the murderer of his son, might also snap into the sword or dagger, the tool, with which the murder had been committed, so too the serpent, that he was Satan's tool, was judged. The serpent would crawl on his belly. That was one part of the judgment. Now, the only meaningful way to understand this is to believe that previously the serpent had been an upright creature, upright in form. Crawling in the dust represented a humbling and how fitting, since the creature had essentially challenged Adam and Eve's God-given authority over him. Now, another result of the curse was the human repulsion for snakes. Verse 15 gives the explanation for that universal phenomenon. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. But the species alone wasn't judged. Jewish and Christian traditions alike recognize that the curse also fell on Satan. Think with me for a minute. Who or what is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, and hers. Well, beginning in Genesis 5, we're going to see that the woman's seed is traced. It's traced in the history and genealogies of Genesis through Adam and Eve's son Seth to Noah and then to Abraham. God promised Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And how did that happen? Well, ultimately, Christ, the Messiah. He is the ultimate descendant of Abraham. So the enmity of which God spoke is the enmity, the strife between those who are aligned with Christ and those who are aligned with Satan, his offspring. It's the conflict of the ages. So with this in mind, we find that the remainder of verse 15 contains a devastating curse on Satan and a tremendous promise for us. He, Christ, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you, Satan, the serpent, will strike his heel. Now, of course, physically speaking, the lowly position of the snake forces it to strike down low, reaching only the heel of the human being. The upright position of a human being would allow his foot to crush a serpent's head. But since Satan, as we've said, was the one most deserving and of the curse, the one behind the, the serpent, we shouldn't limit the meaning to physical attacks of snakes on humans and humans on snakes. From at least the 3rd century BC, Jews and subsequently Christians have seen this as a prediction of the Messiah, 
who would be victorious over the powers of evil. Satan crippled Eve's seed, mankind, in the garden and struck at the heel of Eve's ultimate seed, Messiah, at the cross. But Jesus destroyed the works of the devil by rising from the dead. Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel, and thus it's called the Protevangelion, the first gospel. It's God's promise to send a deliverer, a messiah, to destroy our enemy. We can be assured that our enemy will meet his end because of Christ's victory. One day, he'll be cast into the lake of fire, where he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever, Genesis 20 tells us. In Genesis 3.15, his fate was revealed, and upon Jesus' resurrection, it was sealed. Well, God gave this promise to Adam and Eve and to all Old Testament believers as a basis for forward-looking faith. You see, Old Testament believers looked ahead in faith to Christ, the Deliverer's coming. They put their faith in God's promises. And in the same way, we New Testament believers put our faith in God's promises, but we look back to Jesus' finished work on the cross and trust by faith that it is sufficient. He is sufficient to save us from our sins, just as God has promised Old and New Testament believers alike are saved by faith in God's promises. From the day in which God made that wonderful announcement of a Messiah to come, it's fair to suppose that all women hoped they would be the one to bear this promised deliverer. Immediately following the promise, God told the woman, he told Eve, that she would have pain in childbearing. Let's look at Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Now, this in no way implies that bearing children was no longer God's will for Eve. He established that standard at man's creation. The woman and the man were to multiply. Dr. Walt Kaiser suggests the grief that would henceforth be known to woman lies not so much in the conception or the act of childbirth itself, but in the whole process of bringing children into the world and raising them up to be whole whole persons before God. I'll tell you, I'm sure almost every parent will echo a hearty amen. Giving birth was nothing in comparison to the challenges of raising a child. Now, the second part of the prophecy concerning the woman suggests a change in Eve's desire. Desire, that word is desire there for Adam. Note what it says here, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word translated desire here actually appears only three times in the entire Old Testament. And there's been a lot of scholarly debate about the meaning of this word. One view that's supported by some is that in the context, Eve's desire referred 
back to her prompting of Adam to sin, and that perhaps the text should have been translated, your desire was for your husband. And if that's true, then essentially the meaning here is that having overstepped her bounds in this when she drew Adam into the temptation, she would now be mastered by him. Another twist on this view retains the tense of the word desire that you'll probably find in your text, your desire will be for your husband, not was, but will be, suggesting that from that time forward, Eve's desire would be to usurp Adam's God-ordained authority. Dr. Wayne Grudem says the word desire actually means desire to conquer. The woman would continually challenge her husband's authority. Now, some commentators conclude that the change in Eve's desire was sexual. In other words, despite pain in the childbirth process, the woman would continue to have sexual desire for her husband. But Dr. Kaiser suggests that that interpretation is a male fantasy born out of the text and not by human experience, not born out of the text or by human experience. And he points out that in 21 of 28 ancient extra-biblical texts, the word translated, translated here is translated turning, not desire. That, he says, is how the church fathers also universally understood the term. With the history of this translation error in mind, Kaiser says the Hebrew actually reads, you are turning away, meaning turning away from God, to your husband. And as a result, he will rule over you, meaning as a result, he will take advantage of you. According to Kaiser, the meaning then is that as a result of Eve's sin, she would turn from soul dependence on God to depend instead upon her husband. And Kaiser concludes the results would not at all be pleasant. Now a fourth little idea that I should bring up here keys in on the word rule, stating that as a result of Eve's desire or turning, her husband would no longer show the kind of leadership in the home that God had ordained at creation, but would henceforth rule in a harsh, tyrannical way. Now, even if that's correct, there's no suggestion, in fact, we can't even justify from the Hebrew text any idea that this is a command that husbands should rule harshly. The idea is simply that it would be the sad result of the woman's turning. That's the suggestion of that particular view anyway. Finally, God passed judgment on Adam, a judgment related to his work. Originally, Adam's work was a God-given gift for creativity and exercise. Now, God said to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. You will Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat the food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, 
for dust you are, and to dust you will return. In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul portrays creation as frustrated and eagerly awaiting liberation from its bondage to decay. One day, the earth will be renewed. In the meantime, Adam would continue to work, but the formerly fruitful ground would now be uncooperative, thwarting his efforts and making his work laborious and unsatisfying. God's curse of the ground carried implications for all kinds of work in human culture. Work itself wasn't cursed, but God said our efforts at productivity would be painful. Despite the thorns, thistles, and sweat of Adam's labor, the Lord, however, he graciously ensured that Adam would still eat. And finally, he told Adam that he would return to the ground. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam's physical death was, of course, delayed. His spiritual death was immediate. He was no longer able to remain completely obedient to God. This physical and spiritual condition was passed on to every succeeding generation. However, even Adam's eventual physical death and ours isn't without grace. Death is God's provision that we don't eternally remain in the chaotic state of a sin-cursed world with these sin-cursed bodies. In the midst of judgment, God graciously offered Adam and Eve hope. Now look with me at verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. That statement is of greater significance than we might think in a quick reading. After the fall, Adam named his wife Eve, meaning living. Since, according to this verse now, according to this verse, he now understood that she would become the mother of all the living. doesn't tell us how he understood that, but he understood that she would be the mother of all the living. The name Eve indicates Adam's faith in God's promise that the human race would survive. That is the suggestion back in verse 15, that the woman would have offspring as Satan would have offspring. In verse 16, God promised that Eve would give birth to children. Furthermore, her name indicates Adam's faith that eventually a child would be born who would rescue the human race, just as God had promised in the Protevangelion, verse 15. Although a death warrant had been issued, Adam believed that living was still God's ultimate plan. Before we wrap up, let's take a look at the last four verses. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Now, the Bible doesn't say where the skins came from. Logically, we conclude that animals were slain. That's probably what the Israelite community, the original recipients of the account, would have concluded, since in their day, God ordained a system of animal sacrifices to make atonement for sin. The animal skins that covered Adam and Eve foreshadow a greater covering that was to come, the final atonement, a substitute made for them, and for us by Jesus Christ. 
Adam and Eve's fig leaf coverings, they weren't sufficient. Any more than any attempt we make to cover up our shame, it's always inadequate. The substitute God offers in Jesus is sufficient, the only sufficient covering for us. Now at this point, Adam and Eve had eaten of, had they eaten of the tree of life, they would have lived on in their sinful condition forever. Nothing could have been a greater tragedy than that. Mercifully, God determined to protect them from such a fate. So first the Lord banished Adam and Eve from the garden. Speaking of Adam's banishment, John Wesley wrote, God might have justly chased Adam out of the world, but he only chased him out of the garden. He might have justly cast him down to hell as the angels that sinned were when they were shut out from the heavenly paradise. But man was only sent to till the ground out of which he was taken. Yes, God was indeed merciful to Adam. And second, God protected him by sending cherubim to guard the way to the tree of life. Ezekiel 1 and 10, as well as Revelation 4, describe cherubim as winged creatures with features that resemble humans in part and animals in part. According to those passages, cherubim surround God's throne. God also presented access by placing a flaming sword that flashed back and forth at the garden's entrance. In the Bible, fire represents God's holiness and judgment. The flaming sword at the garden's entrance would have reminded Adam and Eve that God's judgment had been passed and that holiness was necessary to regain the life and the access to the tree of life that they'd lost. God didn't destroy the tree of life or the garden. He merely blocked their access. Speaking of our future in the renewed heaven and earth, Revelation 22.14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Access to God's presence and the tree of life can only be gained by passing under the holy judgment of God's sword. And that is exactly what Jesus did on our behalf when he died on the cross. He took our sins upon himself and passed under God's judgment so that our fellowship with God could be restored. Galatians 3.13 tells us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Christ took the curse we deserve. As far as we know, Adam and Eve weren't given specific details about Christ's coming and work. Still, God's promise of deliverance was the basis of their hope. But the hope God offered was no real hope unless they received it by faith. They had to choose to put their faith in God's promises. And that leads us to our second and last principle. Faith 
in God's promises has always been the means of his salvation. Faith in God's promises has always been the means of his salvation. God's ultimate promise can be found in Revelation 22.3. Speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, God declares no longer will there be any curse. Adam indicated his faith in God's promises when he named Eve. How have you indicated your faith in God's promises? You know, the book of James teaches that true saving faith is always proven by our actions. Again this week, I want to direct you to my letter to you regarding salvation. You can find it on the website. Too many people today have been deceived into thinking that it's just the prayer itself they've prayed, confessing their sin and asking Jesus to save them, that it's that prayer itself that is the means of their salvation. Well, the prayer is an important opportunity and way to express our faith, a good thing to do for sure. But the means of our salvation isn't that one-time prayer. It's our ongoing faith. And real faith isn't just an intellectual belief in the existence or nature of Jesus, of God or Jesus. Even the demons have that kind of belief. No saving faith involves the kind of belief that we're willing to stake our lives on. Do you have that kind of faith in God and his son Jesus, the kind Adam showed in naming Eve? If so, which of God's promises will you stake your life or your circumstances upon this week? Although our sin is a great offense to our creator and he must pass judgment, he has made a gracious provision for us in Jesus, the promised deliverer. Will you, by faith, receive his provision? Father, thank you for this amazing provision that you've made for us in Jesus. Thank you that you show grace even when only judgment is warranted. Father, I pray for those who've not understood what it is to trust Jesus and to come to you through him, your means of salvation. Father, will you open their eyes this week to understand this provision that you've made Thank you that this promise is suggested all the way back in Genesis 3. And Father, we thank you that you show grace and mercy on us every day of our lives. Let us go out from here today determined to live with genuinely thankful hearts for all you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a great week.